Hey, it's Alahe. As you may have heard yesterday, reporters at The Post have embedded inside of one school grappling with community violence. And these reporters witness things few journalists have ever seen firsthand. We're bringing you this reporting on our show this week as part of a series called Surviving to Graduation. If you haven't heard the first episode, please go back and listen to Wednesday's show. You won't want to miss it. Today's show is the second episode in the series. And just a warning, this episode contains descriptions of violence. Okay, here's the show. On our first trip to Richmond, Virginia, we visited Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School. It's in the East End, an area home to a lot of the city's public housing projects. All right, good morning, um, little brothers. Uh, we, uh, we're going to kind of close out. The last couple of months we've been talking about what? The community violence? We met with social worker Olafemi Shepsu. He and a student support specialist lead a group called the Young Kings in Action. It's a mentorship program for boys. About 10 of them were sitting in a circle on the floor. They introduced themselves, giving their name and the neighborhood they live in. My name is Asa, and I'm in eighth grade, and I live in Churchill. My name is Joel. I'm in seventh grade. I live in Moby. The program is supposed to teach boys how to be responsible and to give back to their communities. But they often end up talking about the constant violence and how to stay safe. Let's talk a little bit about um, just how has, what, what have you seen in your neighborhood? If it's been gunshots or whatever else, and how, how has that made you feel? And how has that impacted you um, in your daily routine and school and also in the community? In my neighborhood, uh, so much gunshots that I'm scared to go outside. Shootings are common in the neighborhoods these boys come from, and some of the victims are not much older than they are. In May, a young man was shot across the street from the school in broad daylight. The next month, three teens were shot over the course of one evening in the city's East End, where most of these middle school students live. To stay safe, these boys don't always get to play outside, ride their bikes, go to the park. Sometimes the violence means it's too dangerous to go to school. There are plenty of neighborhoods in the city where this isn't the case. But Richmond Public School students are disproportionately from neighborhoods that struggle with poverty and violence. Every boy had a story about how shootings shaped their lives. One of the boys said a bullet came through his window while he was playing video games just a couple of days before this meeting. Wow. 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 So where were you? Were I was, your family members around or whatever? Yeah, everyone was home. I was playing my game in my room. They started shooting outside. So what did you do? What did you all do? I know we, we've talked about this, Ms. Chef and I, we've talked to you all about this. And we talked about being safe and staying safe. So what did you all do when you heard the gunshots? We, we all turned the lights off and like, stayed away from the windows. Okay, oh. so remember, it's not a time to go looking out the window, trying to see what's going on, or even going outside. You have to think safety. You have to remember that you want to you know, be safe, you know, keep your family safe, and get in a safe area or on the floor in your home, okay? This middle school isn't just teaching these kids math and science. 
It's teaching them to deal with the mortal danger they encounter regularly. Schools around the country have used community circles like these. But Richmond sees them as central to its strategy. And many students there participate on a daily basis. It's part of a broader plan that involves powerful and innovative tactics to keep students safe. The goal is to cultivate empathy, teach students how to regulate their emotions, and resolve conflicts. Leaders hope that these tactics will help stop the cycle of violence. My colleagues and I wanted to know, how well do these efforts work? Could anything be done differently? And how much can schools really do to keep kids safe, not just on campus, but when they head home? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Mariah Balingit, and I cover education. It's Thursday, November 16th. And again, this is part two of our special miniseries called Surviving to Graduation. Definitely check out part one if you haven't heard it yet. For the past year, my colleague Hannah Natanson and I have been working on this story with audio producer Savvy Robinson. It focuses on Richmond Public Schools. During our first visit there, Jaden Carter was killed. He was a high school senior. We watched how Huguenot High School responded to his death. So basically what I do when school experience trauma, I follow the student's schedule that passed away and sit in their class in their exact seat that they, they would have been sitting in all day. It was just kind of like a like an awe because it happened so close to the school. How did you react? Did you... My instant reaction was, what? What? Oh, no. Not again. It took us a long time to figure out what happened the night Jaden died. In fact, we wouldn't learn many of the most important details until late October, nine months after he was buried. But before that, we heard a lot about how adults in Jaden's life had been worried about him, including some of the staff at Huguenot. They saw him heading down a dangerous path and wanted to stop him. As we spent more time in Richmond, we learned that efforts to help students like Jaden weren't random. They were part of the district's ambitious strategy to build a safer community. A community with less crime. A community with less gun violence. A community where the boys we met at MLK Middle School could play outside without worrying about getting hurt. In the spring, we visited Jaden's mom, Joyce Carter, at home. She lives in a two-bedroom apartment on the south side of Richmond, about a 10-minute drive from Huguenot. Jaden used to live here, but after he passed away, his two brothers moved in. They each have a toddler. When we got there, the boys were running around and kept coming up to the microphones, curious to see what was going on. There were toys everywhere. What's your favorite, what's your favorite toy? That's the dinosaur? The T-Rex? On the wall in the hallway, there is a picture of all three of Carter's sons. Jaden is sitting in the middle with a red polo vest on. It was his favorite brand, even as a teenager. His big brown eyes are open really wide, staring right into the camera. How old is he there? Jaden. He was about two. Yeah. He's really cute. His eyes are just so... He's always had those eyes. Mm. 
I think that's why I would love those graduation pictures because I can see his eyes so well. Because he was drawing them dreads and sometimes he'd have them in his face and I'd be like, I want to see your eyes. Carter is talking about the graduation photos she wishes she could have, the ones that she wanted Jaden to take after he'd walked across the stage. She was planning on having a photo shoot with all of her sons and grandkids, all together, like in the photo from when they were kids. It's easier for Joyce to talk about Jaden's childhood. She was able to keep him safe. She usually knew where he would be after school. It's tough for her to think about the night he was killed to recall that he wasn't working that afternoon at the McDonald's down the street, like he was supposed to be. And at first, she had no idea how he could have been shot. Before Jaden died, his parents and Huguenot staff members were pushing him to stay on track academically. His English teacher, Angela Brown, said Jaden excelled when he put in the effort. His best friend told us that Jaden was really good at math. It was clear to them he was smart. He just didn't like school. Huguenot's principal, Robert Gilstrap, told us Jaden had been skipping class and an administrator had spoken to him about it. Brown had told us that she chatted often with Jaden's mom because he wasn't turning in work. It wasn't obvious what he wanted to do after graduation. He talked sometimes about going to trade school to become an electrician. His parents talked a lot about what they had wanted for Jaden's future. His dad, Anthony Raymore, had always said he wanted books or boots for Jaden. In other words, go to college or go into the military, like Raymore did. He, he got a better chance in the military than he got in the streets, what do you think? I mean, in hindsight. There was one other person keeping tabs on Jaden, Willie Ruffin, the police officer assigned to Huguenot. He told us that Jaden had gotten into a fight with another student during the fall of 2021. He was suspended for a week. Ruffin was worried about Jaden because it wasn't the first time Jaden had been on his radar. A few weeks before the fight, another student reported that they'd been robbed on a different school campus. Police showed surveillance video to Ruffin of the group that may have been responsible. And when he looked at it, he saw someone he believed to be Jaden. He thought that the two incidents could be connected, that the student who fought Jaden could have been retaliating for the reported robbery. After the fight, Ruffin spoke with Jaden. I don't want the school to be a, a place where someone has to take revenge for something that happened outside of school. He was just like, um, I didn't really do anything. I was just there. And I was like, I understand. You, you're, gonna, you're innocent until proven otherwise. But... If you continue to be in those type of environments, eventually they're not going to consider you to be innocent if you find yourself in those environments over and over again. So I was like, just take this as, a, as an opportunity to change what you're doing outside of school. And that's kind of like where our conversation ended when it came to that. Ruffin also called Carter to share his concern. She asked Jaden about the robbery. He's like, Ma, I, I, was, I was with my friends. I don't know what they were doing. So I was like, okay, you know, that's when you have the, hey, baby, you need to watch who you hang out with and be careful of the decisions that your friends make when you're with them because the decisions they make affect you as well. And that was the end of it. Sometimes it makes me, I don't know, just wonder, you know. Was there more to it, you know? 
Was it honestly more and I didn't know or Jaden? I don't know. We're not certain if Jaden's death is connected to the fight or that robbery. Detectives had given Carter a copy of the police report from the evening Jaden died, and she shared it with us. But it didn't reveal any more details about what happened to Jaden or why. In the end, none of the adults in Jaden's life could keep him from getting shot. Not his parents and not the staff at Huguenot. But the school's efforts are a clear example of the measures it takes to keep students out of danger. Sometimes Ruffin's job requires him to put students in handcuffs, but he focuses most of his time and energy on keeping them out of trouble, on steering them in a different direction, like he tried to do with Jaden. So some things that a patrol officer would charge for, we try, we try to have a conversation about. It takes a special person to be able to do that, because sometimes it requires you to turn off the cops or robbers mentality and be a father or be a counselor or be a therapist or just be a friend, just listen. This district-wide effort to stop violence involves everything from noticing when a teen looks sad to flagging troubling messages on school computers. It also means closely monitoring the violence in the city and understanding its impact on students. That effort starts before the sun rises. What happens in the community rolls right into our doors. That's Angela Ransom-Jones speaking in a meeting with the district's culture, climate, and student services team. They try to stay on top of the violence affecting Richmond students. Some of this involves coordinating with the Richmond Police Department. On most mornings, a police captain, Daniel Minton, reviews reports from incidents that occurred overnight. If there's anything that could involve a student, he fires off a text message to Jones. Like if a shooting happens near a student's house, or if their family member dies. Sometimes Jones and her team direct a student to counseling. They'll visit their home to suss out a threat. And sometimes, keeping a student safe at school requires more dramatic action. Jones's team coordinates something called a safety transfer. That's when a student moves schools because they could be in danger. Last year, there were 65 of them. We mentioned in the first part of this series that Ruffin keeps an eye on teens' social media accounts. And parents and staff told us how important this kind of work is, since a lot of beef between students starts online. Another way staff can monitor students online is with a program called Gaggle. It tracks everything that students do through their school accounts, like messages they send with Google Chat or what they write in Google Docs. The company has been around since the late 90s and is now used by over 1,500 districts around the country. Jones and her team get an alert every time Gaggle unearths something that could signal trouble. One of her colleagues, Margot Tacey, describes just how relentless the alerts can be. Last school year, there were almost four and a half thousand of them. And that could be in the middle of the night. It could be um, Christmas Day, which I feel like happens every year, although it didn't happen this year. Um, anytime um, where we will respond to that. And Gaggle will notify us. They're great about calling us. Um, Some civil rights advocates say the software violates student privacy. And we spoke with teens who didn't like it. They thought that sometimes the software made administrators overreact because it often flags things that are innocuous. In response to these allegations, Gaggle CEO told us that most districts want the program to err on the side of caution and ask for it to flag anything remotely concerning. 
but he told us that administrators could use more training to help them carefully identify what they should actually address. And sometimes it does flag content that could be a serious threat, like an alert they'd received recently about a Huguenot student. There was another young person with a mask posing with a gun. It was creepy looking because they had Tacey showed us the picture. In it, there's a man wearing a mask that looks like the devil emoji. He's holding what appears to be a semi-automatic rifle and wearing what looks like a bulletproof vest. Tacey followed up to try and get information on where the picture came from. She and Jones also got the Huguenot staff involved. Gilstrap, Ruffin, and one of the school's social workers. I'm saying, we need to track this. Because um, he's... Ruffin responded to it and said, based on body type, it's clearly not that boy. Uh, Young man. I guess they're older there. Um, so maybe the kid just posted a photo of somebody in a... Costume. Or somebody, he claims somebody has hacked his account. After the break, we map the ripple effects of gun violence at Huguenot, and we find out more about what happened the night Jaden died. The work that the district does, both to try and prevent gun violence and in the wake of tragedies like Jaden's death, it's all informed by real-world data and research, by what's actually known about the way gun violence impacts kids, even the ones who were never shot. I had a lot of experiences of seeing children in my practice who came in with symptoms of depression or anxiety or sometimes physical symptoms, stomach aches or headaches. And when I started to ask them when the symptoms began, they told me it was after a friend or a classmate or a neighbor was shot. Aditi Vasan is a pediatrician and researcher at the Center for Violence Prevention at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. After seeing child after child come in with similar symptoms, she and her colleagues decided to investigate. They measured how often children exposed to gun violence were coming into their emergency rooms. What we found was that in the two weeks to two months after episodes of gun violence, children had increased rates of mental health-related emergency room use. Um, and this was an effect that was stronger as you got closer in space and in time. So we saw the greatest increase in mental health symptoms in the two weeks immediately after a shooting and for kids who lived about two to three blocks from where the shooting happened. We thought about this a lot in relation to the shooting that killed Jaden. It happened on a street lined with apartments, and while there were still students at school. Some Huguenot students even live in those apartments. The proximity to school frightens students. If a student could get shot hours after class let out on a street tucked behind the campus, would one of their friends be next? Would they be next? The ripple effects that shootings have on a school community are part of the reason Richmond has made mental health a priority. Huguenot alone has more than a dozen people on its mental health team. That's an extraordinary number for a school of its size. It's a source of pride for Principal Gilstrap, who talked about it in the same way a football coach might talk about a state-of-the-art stadium. Um, so to get started, um, we usually start with weekly wins related to mental health. Um, so if anybody has a big weekly win that you want to share to get us started. The mental health team meets often to share updates. 
They discuss their caseloads, ask for advice from one another, and talk through tough situations. We went to one of these meetings back in April. They opened it by sharing success stories, like a student who's been in and out of counselors' offices for a while because of fights. That student recently got a job and seems to be more focused. Sometimes he's really tough to work with, and he... I don't want to count my chickens, you know, but definitely have seen a big turnaround in just the last couple of weeks. His, uh, his getting a job is a, is yeah. a big deal. He yeah. er, didn't even understand, why do I need to make a resume? Why can't I just walk in and get hired on the spot? He's, he's, had, a, he's had a lot of turnaround. Gilstrap shares the news that one of Huguenot's top-performing seniors will be headed to Spelman, a historically black women's college in Atlanta. She got a full scholarship and achieved this despite dealing with the loss of loved ones that year. So she's going to be able to go and fulfill some of her dreams and probably get away from some of the major stressors in her life. So that would be one. And then That student is Kamaya King. She rode the bus with Jaden and lived in his apartment complex. You briefly heard from her in the first episode. Her brother and her dad both passed away during her senior year. Since then, she'd had a tough time making it to the classes she was taking at the local community college, J. Sergeant Reynolds. After my brother had passed away, I was just moping around the school a lot for like two weeks. I I could I didn't go to J. Sergeant Reynolds because they actually wanted me to do work. So I was like, I'm not going there because I couldn't. It was too much for me. But a few of the staff at Huguenot made sure she had people to talk to and didn't fall too far behind. Angela Brown and another teacher let her sit in their classrooms during lunch. The senior class counselor, Monique Harris, took her to the community college to do makeup tests. Harris once waited for an hour outside of Kamaya's home to drive her to school. She just was there for me because I was really struggling to do my work after that and getting caught up. So she was more so like, if I wanted to talk about it, I could. But she was more so like, you need to get this done, this done, and this done. So Ms. Harris kept me on track a lot. Kamaya is a Huguenot success story a great example of what a young person can do with the right support. She graduated with the third highest GPA in her class. She is one data point among many that the district is collecting to try and understand if what it's doing is working. District leaders want to know if their efforts are paying off, not just in preventing violence, but in helping students succeed. But Jones, who leads the district's culture, climate, and student services team, said it's hard to tell. The ground keeps shifting. It's like trying to judge the outcome of a science experiment when the lab flooded and all the specimens were contaminated. Who's to know how things would have turned out if Richmond hadn't been the last district in the state to reopen schools during the pandemic, or if youth violence hadn't spiked? Is it working? So I, I would say yes, but I'm not going to say a super strong yes, because I think it is a work in progress. And, um, and we're still learning so much. And we don't have the, the secret sauce quite yet. And the secret to measuring that, I don't know that we have yet. You know, we used to measure everything by attendance behavior grades. You know, does attendance going up, behavior going down, behavioral infractions, and our grades increasing? Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily the best way to, to measure everything. Our children showing up and participating 
in the, the extra activities that we have. And I don't know that we can measure all of it. What's working and what's not are things Jones will have to figure out soon. The district hired more than a dozen people during the pandemic, using COVID relief dollars to support its mental health initiatives. That funding only lasts until September of 2024. The school district will have to decide what to keep and what to eliminate, including staff. But Jones says that it simply can't afford to lose anyone else. It's already strapped. I know the board has to make some really tough, tough decisions with regard to how to best staff, of, staff our schools. I think we need every single one of those positions right now. Everyone we spoke with agreed. Richmond schools need even more staff and even more support, not less. The need for these mental health supports is enormous. Last school year, nine RPS students were gunned down. And every time a student dies, it touches so many people in the community. Their classmates, their neighbors, the people who saw them get shot, and of course, their friends. We saw this firsthand when we spoke with Lamont Gales, Jaden's best friend. He'd gone to Huguenot with Jaden and graduated the year before. That meant he couldn't use the school's grief counseling services anymore. He lit up when we talked about the times Jaden made him laugh, like when he would do strange voices. He'll say some funny stuff, like, and he'll make some funny noises so we could laugh, like, no cap. We met with Lamont at his mother's brick row house, which is right around the corner from where Jaden lived. We settled in the living room next to a large, gurgling fish tank. When my colleague Hannah asked Lamont about the harder stuff, we could barely hear him over the sound of it. Did you think he was going to graduate? Were you expecting him to? Yeah, of course. So was his death a big shock? Lamont and Jaden spent a lot of their free time together. Once Jaden died, Lamont's mom said that he stopped talking. He stayed in his room. He stopped going to parties. He didn't feel like being social. Jaden wasn't the only one Lamont had recently lost to gun violence. Lamont told us that seven people close to him in the last year had been killed. We wondered how he felt in Richmond after so many people he knew had been gunned down. I mean... That's rich, man. Like, I feel unsafe. I don't feel safe nowhere. Yeah. That's why I just want to move. Right? Where? Where do you want to move to? Somewhere that's not no violence for real. Like, I don't know. In a different state. I don't want to be in Richmond no more. Not long before we met Lamont, he got a construction job. It takes him to different locations. The week we interviewed him, he was working on Chincoteague Island. It's this really popular vacation spot with scenic beaches and wild ponies. Over the past decade, only one person has been shot and killed there. He returns home only on weekends. He hopes that he and his mom can save up enough money to move away. You heard in our first episode what a school does when a student dies. Those efforts extend outside the schools, too. When Jaden was killed, one of the school's family liaisons 
dropped by the home of his mother, Joyce Carter, and called her to check in. Gilstrap went to the wake. There are also protocols for what to do when a high school senior dies. So many young people have lost their lives just months shy of graduating that the state now spells out how to honor them. Lawmakers passed a bill earlier this year that allows schools to give them posthumous diplomas. At Huguenot, staff also decided to make shadow boxes for the families of seniors who'd passed away. These were display cases that have graduation memorabilia in them. Jaden's shadow box had the cap and gown he would have worn in it. Laid next to them was one of those posthumous diplomas with a yellow stole that had the name of the school's mascot on it, Falcon. For months, all we knew about Jaden's death was what appeared in the news article from the night he died. We also found out from the medical examiner's office that he was shot in the head. And as we said earlier, Jaden's mother gave us a copy of the police report that offered no more details. Then, in late October, we reached out to police one last time to see if they had more information to share. And they called me back. Hello? Yes, this is the Richmond Police Department calling from Mariah, please. Oh, hi. Yeah, this is Mariah. How are you? Hi. Well, thank you. This is James Mercanti over here in the Public Affairs Unit. I just spoke with uh, folks in Major Crimes, and I do have, hopefully, um, a little clarity I can can lend. The department spokesperson told me that detectives investigating the case had concluded Jaden was trying to rob a man that evening. They believe he shot the man, and the man shot back striking Jaden in the head. They were calling it a, quote, justifiable homicide, meaning the man who shot Jaden would not be held criminally liable. The department wouldn't tell us how they determined the sequence of events, whether they spoke to witnesses or had surveillance video. And we tried, but ultimately couldn't get in touch with the other man involved in this incident. We ran this past Jaden's mom, and she wasn't sure what to believe. She didn't want to believe her son had shot someone. And she'd also heard another version of events, where Jaden was shot first. It makes you think a lot, you know. You know, it's just really what happened, you know. But then you hear, so, you know, you've heard one version, then you're hearing this version. Which version do you actually believe? It makes you look at things differently. But the one thing that doesn't change in all of that, me second-guessing and wondering, I still loved my son, you know, regardless if he did something wrong, you know. You know, but it makes you wonder, you know, who's really lying? Carter always had one rule for her sons. Tell the truth, no matter how much it hurts. It makes me wonder, you know, Was my baby actually lying to me, you know? Because I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. You know, I trusted everything that he told me. And that's my fault. Hearing this from the police made us think so much more about how Huguenot staff had tried to help Jaden and other students like him. Ruffin, Gilstrap, Angela Brown, all of them had tried to get through to Jaden in their own way. 
Brown had been in contact with his mom to try and figure out how to get him to go to school. Trying to get this young man on track to to pass and graduate. I've been talking to his mom a lot. Ruffin had pulled him aside and was trying to get him away from the sort of trouble that ultimately may have led to his death. So I was like, just take this as as an opportunity to change what you're doing outside of school. Gilstrap's philosophy was to listen rather than condemn Jaden and other students who aren't considered innocent. I'm not going to give up on anybody as long as they're still breathing. We wondered what they thought about their efforts, given what we learned about what may have happened the night that Jaden died. Did it change their feelings about Jaden, hearing that police believed he was shot in the middle of a botched robbery that left another man critically wounded? When we spoke to Gilstrap, he said that even if those things were true, it didn't make Jaden's death any less tragic. Rarely do I feel like I ever know really all the story of any of these situations. But if the worst things were true, it's still a tragedy. Because somebody would put themselves into a position where they felt like they either needed to or wanted to do something that bad, and it went so wrong. So it's still a tragedy. And we're always talking about kids when we're talking about this. So I still went to his funeral mourning his death, even if he shot that other person first. I wish he wouldn't have if he did, and I definitely wish he wouldn't have got killed. But um, no, I, um, I don't care less about him because of that. Next time on Surviving to Graduation, the graduation ceremony. I'm excited, though. Um, I'm only nervous because, like, you have to walk across the stage in front of a lot of people. You feel like this gets easier? This is not the hard part of this job. (laughs) This is the easiest part of this job. Yeah. And how the ceremony's shocking end changed the school and us. Yeah. That sounded like gunshots. Yeah. I am. I mean, I know that you guys are doing a story, but I am so, so sorry that this is your experience. Like, this is... Insane. This is so upsetting. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was reported by me and my colleagues Hannah Natanson and Sabi Robinson, who also produced this episode. It was edited by Rena Flores and Adam Kushner. Thanks to Renita Jablonski, Maggie Penman, April Bethea, Krista Thompson, and Lucas Trevor. This show was mixed by Sean Carter. We spent months reporting this episode, really trying to dig deep into the triumphs and the struggles of one school. More than 50 people spent hundreds of hours with us, telling us their stories. It's work that takes time and effort and a lot of people. The best way to show your support for the show and this series is to subscribe to The Washington Post, and you'll get access to the kind of in-depth journalism you just heard here. To do this, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Mariah Belingit, and we'll be back tomorrow with the final episode in the series. <laughs>